1: after I read the Bible, make Elias very, very, very different. Before it was, I didn't like my name. Now I love it. I grew up in El Salvador, San Salvador, and my mom was pregnant. She couldn't go to the hospital. So in the bench of the park, uh, that was me. Because I was a poor child, My mom was a single mom. And I grew up like that. Since uh, the beginning, I always wanted to find out, what is God? Who is God? When I was 18 years old, I became a revolutionary to do a civil war. Then I didn't even know what I was fighting for. I was in the rank of sergeant. They uh, sent me to actually kill somebody. But that wasn't in my heart. And somebody told me that they were looking for me. And I was working. And they took like 10 people in there and, and put them on the line. They uh, put a hood on them. They put some gasoline and tell the hey, and if you don't say the names, or oh, where can I find this guy, we're going to kill you. So what they did is they put it on fire after they get more names. So I got there and I saw the bodies and I saw a list on the tree. There was my name, so I I left by myself without money from my country. I only had for those days, it was like three colones. It was kind of like $1. I had a wife, I had my mom, My son was, let's say, 16 16 months, something like that. But what could I do at that time? So I left to the uh, next border, so it was Guatemala. Somehow I did some work for somebody so I can get some money to get to the frontier. And when I get to the border, I could go across with my identity, but they were looking for me. So I couldn't use it, so I went across the river too. But it took me from El Salvador to Federal District in Mexico like one year, because I was walking. I was kind of like, my journey was just surviving. And I found out that uh, they were looking for me. They found the place where I, I was living in. They uh, torture my mom, they broke her legs. I felt like, I mean angry, so angry Then I had, then I felt like come back and not to care about anything else, but just revenge. Then my mom said, I'd rather for you to be far away and alive than near me and dead. She started to tell me, uh, God will protect you and I started thinking about it more and more after a while I kept moving on my journey and uh, I was already with uh, another guy and we were always walking through the railroad we were hungry thirsty tired we didn't know what to do but far away on you know we saw a little casita right there. So that day we um, approached the house and the skinny lady tall, she gave us food to take with us. And we turned around and we, on our way to the railroad again, I tried to turn around with them. Believe it or not, that place, it wasn't there. It maybe was a mirage or something, but how could we say that it was a mirage when uh, we had the food in our our hands. So I started thinking about it more and more. Then there was a higher power. Somebody was taking care of us. When I go across the border here in the United States and thinking about help my mom, help my son and my wife over here, that was my goal, to get him out, which I did eventually. For work over here, I started uh, working in construction for a company for 10 years. So I made a lot of money. Then I quit from that company and start doing my company and make more money. If you don't know God, you don't know what to do, what he gave you. And I had the liberty to do a lot of things, bad things. And I lost my wife. We got divorced. You got uh, my kids, they grew up and I lost everything and I started drinking heavily, heavily the way that I was kind of even sleep on the streets. I got to the place that I, I was wondering if there's God. If there's God, I mean, God, you exist. Give me a sign, give me something to start with again, and I will do whatever you desire. You just give me a peace in my heart. And believe it or not, that night, I didn't feel like Drink it anymore. I didn't need somebody to tell me, stop doing it. And that's what he did. He chose me, then there's a way. And amazingly, everything was turning around for the best. So, what I did is, I want to go to church because I feel better, but I don't know where to go. So, my son was living at those days at uh, Loma Linda, and I asked him if he can let me stay in his house. And he said, Well, yeah. The following day, I took a shower in the morning on Saturday, and I said, well, I'm gonna go and see if I can find a church. And I start walking. I didn't know anything about Adventists, So in the corner of Barton Road in Mountain View, a man get off the bus with the Bible under his hand. And uh, I said, I gotta follow him and ask him what's going on. I mean, where he goes. On those days, that church didn't have any sign I walk over, the guy went into that building, and I sit on the next to an old man, and he told me, oh, you're new. I'll take you to the Bible study. So that was amazing, and I said, well, okay, but I don't have a Bible, don't worry. I'm gonna give you my Bible so you can read it. The Bible, I tried to read it before. It didn't make sense because I started reading Genesis, and it's kind of like I was falling asleep. But this time, this guy gave me his Bible and he was explaining passage by passage. And I love it. And he was trying to realize that there is God. There is God. And I, you know, I got to know what it is. On my 50s, I started being an Adventist and I feel like I just born. I can tell you, I wouldn't live. I mean, I'd be dead. The Bible, it was my companion when. I was stopped by the police when I was drinking and all that stuff, so I had to go to jail for nine months. And it became part of me, the Bible, because I didn't know where to go, what to do in that place. So what I had to do is have my Bible and just pray and open it, and it gave me the answer. And I started believing. So it shows me a lot of things, the Bible, step by step. And I've been kind of like slowly discovering and trying to make analysis of what it says. The Bible is for me is, I would call it my guide of life, the guide to know him, to know what his desire is. I thank God more when I'm sick or when I don't, when I don't have anything. I have more even now than before. I'm not rich. I don't need anything else but what I have. I help people, and that's what it matters. I mean, you gotta be good for people.
0: Amen. Some years ago, I was asked a question by a student in a class at break time. It wasn't an angry or confrontational question. It was a question of sincere curiosity. She said to me, explain this to me. A 2,000-year-old, at best, book that you believe you follow and by which you order your life. Seriously? I don't understand that. It's a good question. How would you answer it? As I've thought about that question, it seems that we could break it out into three sub-questions in order to answer the main one. First question, is the Bible trustworthy? Second question, is the Bible reliable? Third question, does the Bible matter? In other words, do we hear through the words of this book the voice of God? That's the claim that we as Christians make. I want to take you to a psalm, Psalm 19, that makes the same claim. Now, if you remember, the first week of this series, we were in Psalm 19. We read that passage, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies show the work of His hands." For five or six verses, the psalmist goes along talking about how the created order has the fingerprints of God all over it, but it doesn't tell us specific things about God. So then the psalmist will go next to what we need to read to know specific and personal things about God that's what we're going to read today now before we read it i'll just tell you that in line with hebrew poetry the psalmist will say the same thing a number of times using different words he'll refer to the commandments of the lord the precepts of the lord the desires of the lord all of those are a way of referring to god's revealed will In scripture that we would call the Bible that they would have called the Hebrew scriptures and the psalmist will tell us that through those he guides us informs us gives us wisdom warns us that's how we know God's will our question today is is that claim valid so first of all here the claim Psalm 19 beginning with verse 7 the law of the Lord is perfect refreshing the soul They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So first he began, the heavens declare the glory of God. Theologians have often talked about that as general revelation. It's the means by which we can know something about God, but not specific realities about God's character and will. But then we come to what theologians call special revelation, the revealed Word of God. That's what the psalmist discusses here. Our question is, is it a valid claim? So since we get that word through this book, we begin with that first question. Is the Bible trustworthy? Now, for not decades, but for hundreds of years, Theologians and scholars and Bible students have been at work on that question. The body of material available for study and for understanding is vast. The only thing we can do is nibble around the edges today. In fact, as I looked at this, the choices I'd made about different possibilities, I thought this feels a bit piecemeal because there is just so much. But consider, as you wrestle with that question in your own life, are there credible reasons to believe the Bible is trustworthy? Maybe consider these realities. I would start with the honesty of the Bible, the utter candor that it contains. I mean, honestly, if you were going to write a book about your family's story, would you really trot out all the flaws, all the errors, all the egregious mistakes they had made? Or when you're rummaging through the attic and looking at those pictures and thinking, oh, my, look at, look at the people. Oh, mercy, I look like him, and he doesn't look good. And when you're thinking about those kinds of things in your family, the tendency is to try to hide those. The Bible is blatantly honest almost to the degree that we as readers say, ooh, back off a little bit, TMI. I didn't need to know that about him, about her. In fact, that leads the rabbi and scholar Jonathan Sacks to write this, writing about the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible is the supreme example of that rarest of phenomena, a national literature of self-criticism. Other ancient civilizations recorded their victories. The Israelites recorded their failures. It is what the Mosaic and prophetic books are about. So as you grapple with that question, is it trustworthy? Maybe you want to spend some time thinking about that. Or you might turn to the field of archaeology, a huge field, to try to consider whether or not it underlines what's in Scripture. Years ago, one of the preeminent Adventist archaeologists, Dr. Siegfried Horn, published a book about archaeology that he entitled The Spade Confirms the Book. I love the title. The spade, that's how he referred to his and other colleagues' archaeological digs, confirms the book, the scripture. Notice that Dr. Horn didn't say the spade proves the scripture. We've talked about that earlier in this series. The Bible doesn't ask us for proof. It solicits our faith. But Dr. Horn, after many years of working at archaeological digs, could say the spade does confirm the book. I've had the wonderful privilege... Of spending hours at different sites, digs in Israel and Jordan and other countries in that part of the world, and listening to people like Dr. Larry Garrity, an exceptional archaeologist, talk about what has been found, what has been discovered. I'll be honest with you, I don't want to overclaim. It does not answer every question. But time and again, things emerge from the dirt that, to use Dr. Horn's term, confirm the book. In fact, I love the way Dr. Garrity says it. Sometimes when people ask, Well, has this been found or has that been found or are we to give up on that? He says, Well, we haven't found that yet, but we're still digging. The spade confirms the book. Maybe you want to spend some time there. Or maybe you want to go into the issue of looking at the text itself. Is it dependable? Is it trustworthy? This book we call Scripture. So for that thinking, I turn to the thought and the mind of the late F.F. Bruce, preeminent scholar, University of Manchester in the UK. F.F. Bruce dedicated his life to studying the New Testament documents and came to the point where he could say this. These are the words of F.F. Bruce. The evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. In fact, if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. It is a curious fact that historians have often been much readier to trust the New Testament than have many theologians. So what Bruce is saying is, if this book were secular, we would accept it as beyond all doubt, but because it's religious. I'm not sure why. Is it because it makes demands on our lives? Cuts across the, the grain of our desires, for whatever reason, it gets cast into doubt. So, what would allow F.F. Bruce to write a statement like that? Was he just saying that, or were there substantive reasons behind it? Well, there were substantive reasons. For example, Bruce points out how early the manuscripts came into being, telling, for example, the story of Jesus. The first three gospels were written within the lifetimes of people who had known, listened to, watched, maybe been cured or even, even raised by Jesus. Jesus even if you put them at the later date that some scholars do, that would still be the case. The fourth gospel to be written, John, near the end of the first century, still would have been within the lifespan of many of those who were alive when Jesus walked the earth. Now you say, well, why is that so important? A scholar named Daniel Peterson interacts with the thinking of F.F. F. Bruce in one of his blogs and helps us answer that question by pointing out how far after the fact, many of the other ancient secular manuscripts came into being. So listen to what Peterson writes. For Julius Caesar's Gallic War, written between 58 and 50 B.C., nine or ten decent manuscripts exist, the earliest of which was created nine centuries after Caesar. Of the 14 books of the histories of Tacitus, only four completely survive in just two manuscripts from the 9th century and the 11th. Beyond a few papyrus scraps from roughly the time of Jesus Christ, the great 5th century B.C. history of Thucydides is known to us through just eight manuscripts, the earliest of which was created around A.D. 900. The same is true of his great contemporary Herodotus, often called the father of history. Yet, Bruce comments, we're back to F.F. Bruce now, no classical scholar would listen to an argument that the authenticity of Herodotus or Thucydides is in doubt because the earliest manuscripts of their works, which are of any use to us, are over 1,300 years later than the originals. So Bruce says... Look at the secular writings which are taken as beyond reasonable doubt and compare them to what we have in terms of manuscripts or manuscript fragments. It's overwhelmingly weighted in favor of the trustworthiness, the authenticity of Scripture. In fact, we read it right there, nine or ten manuscripts, a few scraps, manuscripts, Of the New Testament, of Scripture, we have between five and 6,000 manuscripts, manuscript portions, or manuscript fragments, some from very early dates. In fact, that's the next thing to which Peterson turns when he underlines just how old some of the fragments and manuscripts are. He says this, Portions of the Chester Beatty biblical papyri, which contain most of the New Testament, date as far back as the early A.D. 200s. In fact, certain papyrus fragments that may reflect a knowledge of the four gospels have been dated no later than A.D. 150. One such fragment, kept in the John Rylands Library at Manchester, has been assigned a date of A.D. 130. It contains verses from John 18. Papyrus Bodmer II from around AD 200 contains the first 14 chapters of John with one relatively small gap. Greek and Roman history are routinely discussed and taught on the basis of manuscript evidence that isn't remotely as solid and secure as this. Is the Bible trustworthy? The answer to that is a vast store of material. We are just barely nibbling around the edges. But maybe, maybe it will be enough to say, yes, there are credible reasons for which we put faith in the trustworthiness of Scripture. Second question. Is the Bible relevant? Does it speak to my life? Come on, when we open the pages of the Bible and suddenly we're knee deep in patriarchs and prophets and kings and judges and battles and conquests and and a world that's totally remote from mine, it's very easy to get lost. It's very easy to do exactly what Hosea did when he said, I sat down and read Genesis and fell asleep. (laughs) It doesn't connect with me. It's foreign to my world. In fact, that question of relevance, I would argue, is answered by saying it's not relevant for one reason. And that word is distance. There is a great distance between the world of the Bible and our world. And when we allow that distance to persist... The Bible doesn't feel relevant. In fact, I would contend that most people, most Christ followers don't read their Bibles, not because they're bad, but because they're bored. You you sit down and try to read and think, how does this connect? It's like me being at at, at my auto mechanics. It's going to take two or three hours. You can sit in the office there. you can read any of the books on the wall, and they're all auto mechanics books. Three minutes, I'm out, done. doesn't connect with my world, with my life. And that's how many find Scripture, for very good reasons. In fact, I just jotted down a list of the kinds of things that make the biblical world distant from my world. Here are some of the ones I jotted down. Language, culture, geography, history, roles, beliefs, assumptions, politics, technology, travel, and the list could go on. All of those things are different from our world, which leaves us feeling like the Bible is remote to me however if there is a way to collapse the distance between the two worlds suddenly the Bible comes alive so what does that mean to collapse the distance well think of it this way let's turn things around and let's say rather than trying to bring the Bible into our world let's say that that you are able to travel back 2,000 years to ancient Ephesus and you stand in the great marketplace of ancient Ephesus. The cacophony of life roars around you. The merchants, the cattle, the animals, the people, the chinking of coins, it's all happening around you when suddenly, right in front of you, a piece of paper floats down out of the sky and lands at your feet. You've never seen a piece of paper like this, so you pick it up. And you you realize that on it, there is some some hen scratching. So you take it to the University of Ephesus. There's a scholar there. Here, this floated down out of the sky. Thus begins a quest to discover what this hen scratching is, what it says, and what it means. Months, years, decades are spent on it. They're finally able to come back and say, we've discovered that what is written here is written in a language. That language is English. Now we're trying to sort through what it actually says, and then we'll sort through what it actually means. So when they finally figure out what it says... They read it to you. It's a note from a 21st century Southern California wife to her husband. Here's what it says Honey, I ran to the corner market, tried texting you, but my phone battery died. Did you get the email from your sweet mate at the office? He wants to fly with you to the convention at Caesar's Palace next week. You need to call him ASAP. See you at the gym tonight. Kisses, your sugar plum. You're a bright group. How long did it take you to figure that out? You figured it out as we read. Immediately, instantaneously, because there is no distance between you and that wife's and husband's world. You live in that world. But at ancient Ephesus, they are now, 2,000 years ago, handing out doctoral degrees, carefully figuring out what a sugar plum is. Theses written on it, dissertations defended on where Caesar, how do you fly to Caesar's palace? Because the distance is great. In fact, just consider in that one simple note the terms that would have been problematic 2,000 years ago honey, <laughs> texting, phone battery died, email, sweet mate, office, fly with you, Caesar's palace, call him, ASAP, Jim, sugar plum. It's filled with terms that we would have to collapse the distance between the two worlds in order to understand. But once that has been done, we immediately understand. So what if we can collapse the distance between our world and the world of Scripture? How do we do that? And by the way, folks, we are swimming in Bible study helps, swimming in a sea of it. There's no excuse for not being able to do this. We do it by learning more about the language, the culture, the roles, the understandings, the beliefs, the geography, the history, the weather, all kinds of things. The more we know about that, the more then when we open and read the text, it's like reading that note becomes more possible to understand. And when we understand it energizes us we don't fall asleep anymore because we realize that it's relevant to our lives you struggle with fear do not fear for I am with you appears over and again in Scripture wrestling with guilt if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins Overwhelmed with sorrow at the death of a loved one, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Are you feeling scarcity in a tough economic time? Paul says, my God will supply all your riches according to his glory in Christ Jesus. Are you weeping at the grave of a friend? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, from Adam's sin to John the Revelator's pen, the whole story of Scripture Cuts across the swath of human life. Speaking to our needs. Our core human needs. Maybe it helps to keep the full view in mind. For that I turn to the words of Philip Yancey. I love the way Yancey puts it. So simple. Here's what Yancey says about keeping the big picture, the bird's eye view in mind. He says, in my lifelong study of the Bible, I have looked for an overarching theme, a summary statement of what the whole sprawling book is about. I have settled on this. God gets his family back. From the first book to the last, the Bible tells of wayward children and the torturous links to which God will go to bring them home. Indeed, the entire biblical drama ends with a huge family reunion in the book of Revelation. Bear that in mind. It's the story of what God is doing to bring us to himself. For that, when we approach Scripture, we have to remember what it is. It's not a medical textbook, even though it has information that is medically meaningful. It's not a history textbook, even though it has historical information that is very helpful. It's not a scientific textbook, even though it has scientific information that is accurate. What it is, it's the story of salvation, of God bringing you and me to his heart. Keep that big picture in mind because then when you ask the question, is the Bible relevant, maybe you will say there are credible reasons to say absolutely. Is the Bible trustworthy? I think there are credible reasons to say yes. Is the Bible relevant? I think there are credible reasons to say yes. And thirdly, does the Bible matter? There are a lot of things in our life that may be trustworthy, may be relevant, but that really don't matter all that much. Is that true of this book? Does the Bible matter? Does it matter to you, to me, to the church? Does it matter to the world? After all, some horrible things have been committed in the name of this book. Make no mistake about that. Does the Bible matter? So there's something I've been thinking about a lot. Not for weeks, not for months, but for the last several years. I've been thinking a lot about this. You and I are being formed. We're being formed, we're being shaped. We're being formed and shaped on a daily basis. We are becoming something. Now, that into which we are being formed, that into which we are being shaped, depends. It depends on maybe a variety of factors, but especially on two. It depends on who has your eyes and on who has your ears. Whoever has your eyes, whoever has your ears, is shaping you, forming you. So I have to ask you who is forming you? Who is transforming you into a certain image? Is it talk radio, hours a day? Is it news stations that no longer intend to inform but merely to enrage? Is it 140 characters in a tweet? Who has your ears? Who has your eyes? Whoever has those is forming you. Plain and simple. And when this sits on the shelf gathering dust, this is not forming you. Whatever claim we might make, So let me ask, if this does form me, what might I expect? Again, there are many directions to which we could turn, but I point you to one, Ryan Foley, the Christian Post, writing about the results of a recent survey that was done. Here's what Foley writes. According to a recent survey, Americans who regularly read the Bible are the most likely group to demonstrate neighborliness, in addition to placing higher premiums on civic participation and mental health than their religious, less religious counterparts. The survey examined Americans' embrace of pro-social priorities, civic involvement in life care, intellectual humility, and other qualities associated with neighborliness, Respondents identified as Scripture-engaged, and by Scripture-engaged, it means defined as consistent interaction with the Bible that shapes people's choices and transforms their relationships with God, self, and others. Respondents who identified as Scripture-engaged indicated the highest level of support for pro-social priorities. John Farkuhar Plake, director of ministry intelligence for the American Bible Society, reacted to the research in a statement. In a ruthless cycle of news headlines showing suffering and disruption, people are longing to return to neighborliness, desperately hoping for compassion and to see that neighbors will gladly help neighbors when needed, he said. Our research shows that regular engagement with Scripture brings hope and healing for people. It also suggests that those who seek to actively live their life according to the Word of God are prone to exhibit kindness and neighborly qualities, he added. To show a hurting world what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves, we must return to the pages of the Bible. How old-fashioned is that? What is forming you? We listened to Jose on our screen. I was so moved by his story. Listen to what he had to say. The, the life he lived, the danger, the, the darkness that pressed in upon him. But did you notice what he said toward the end of the video? He said, The Bible is my companion. I turn to it for guidance to understand God's will for me. And then he said this, as that scripture continues to form him, he said this, then I go out and help people. Neighborliness. So what is forming you? Something is forming you. What happens if it's scripture? Love the story of R.A. Torrey. About a century ago, an evangelist had a man come to him said, I don't know what to do. I don't get anything out of reading the Bible. My, my life with God is absolutely dry. And Tori gave him an ingenious answer. He said, read your Bible more. <laughs> he said, I read it all the time. It means nothing. I fall asleep. Read it What do you mean read it more? He says, okay, choose a book and read that book in the Bible. Choose a Bible book, read it 12 times a day. What? <laughs> Twelve times a day. So choose a small one like 2 Peter. 2 Peter, by the way, is what Peter wrote to people who had grown weary of waiting for Jesus to come. They were about to throw it all overboard. And Peter says, don't give up the faith. So Tory says to him, read, read 2 Peter 12 times a day. I want you to hear in the words of that man what happened. The man later said, my wife and I read 2 Peter three or four times in the morning, two or three times at noon, and two or three times at dinner. Soon I was talking 2 Peter to everyone I met. It seemed as though the stars in the heavens were singing the story of 2 Peter. I read 2 Peter on my knees, marking passages. Teardrops mingled with the crayon colors. And I said to my wife, See how I have ruined this part of my Bible? And my wife said, Yes, but as the pages have been getting black, your life has been getting white. What is forming you? Because what forms you matters. It matters in your life, in your relationships, and friends, let's be very honest, it matters in our world. Does the Bible matter? I think there are very credible reasons to answer yes, it does. So if that student were to ask me the question today, 2,000 years old, seriously? I think I'd say yes, because I believe it's true, because it speaks to my life, and because it continues to change me. You know, interestingly enough, Psalm 19 Starts out with general revelation. The the, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. Then it moves to special revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect. But by the end of the psalm, it's about what's happening in the soul. Because listen to the last verse of the psalm that begins so majestically. Here's how it ends, verse 14. May these words of my mouth And this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Starts with the heavens. It goes to the book. And it ends in your heart. Credible reasons to believe. But we must do so in the right spirit. For that reason, I invite you to stand and to read with me our guiding passage for this series, as the guys put it up on the screen, from 1 Peter chapter 3. Would you read it aloud together with me? Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Gracious God, thank you for your revelation. Thank you for giving us credible reasons to believe. Lord, we place our trust in you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.